is established to give us a regular reminder that arrogance needs to be removed from our life, that we have nothing of any value to God. In fact, if it were not for God's grace, we would not have salvation. That is something that is true for each and every one of us, despite the fact that some of us have different talents, different abilities, uh, different uh, places in life. Uh, nevertheless, we all have one thing in common, and that is that we were all born with a sin nature, condemned on the basis of Adam's original sin, and destined for eternity in the lake of fire. It is the grace of God who supplied a perfect and sufficient salvation for us so that we can have an eternal relationship with Him. There's nothing that demanded that God provide a salvation for us. That is a manifestation of His own love and His own integrity. So when the Lord celebrated the Passover, actually the last genuine Passover meal, was the one He celebrated with His disciples the night before He went to the cross. And He took at that Passover meal two of the elements in the Passover, and He invested them with new meaning. You see, the Passover meal itself was designed to foreshadow the work of Christ on the cross, actually His person, both His person and His work. It also looked back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And the Bible uses Israel's slavery in Egypt as a picture of the believer's slavery to sin. Their deliverance from Egypt took place on that night that they had the first Passover, when the Jews applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost of the house. When the angel of death saw the blood that was applied to the doorpost, he passed over that house. That's where we get our word Passover. And so the firstborn in that house was not taken. All houses where there was no blood applied, then the angel did not pass over and the firstborn was taken. That was the last of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians in order to uh, force them to release the Jews and to let them go and to give them their freedom from their slavery in Egypt. The same. So all of that pictures our redemption in Christ, that it is the application of the blood of Christ, which, as we'll see in our lesson this morning, uh, pictures His spiritual substitutionary atonement. When that blood is applied, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, then we have eternal life, and we are no longer subject to eternal condemnation. The problem of spiritual death has been resolved, and we are regenerated and made spiritually alive. We receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, and we have eternal life, a life that can never be taken from us. So at the, at the Last Supper, which was the last Passover, our Lord uh, celebrated that with His disciples. When He came to the point where they broke the bread, the unleavened bread, which pictured His person, that He was without sin. The leaven is a picture of sin. And when they broke the unleavened bread, that was a picture of His, of his death. But the bread itself is a picture of His, uh, of his perfect uh, nature that he was without sin, and therefore he was qualified to go to the cross on our behalf. So the bread is the first element. It speaks of his person that qualified him to go to the cross, and then the cup represents his work 
The cup is usually red grape juice or red wine, and it is a picture of blood. The blood itself is a picture of his spiritual death. We will study that in detail in our series on Revelation this morning. It is the blood of Christ that are his spiritual substitutionary atonement that pays the penalty for our sin. So when we come to the Lord's table, our focus during this time is on who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. It is a time to reflect, to meditate, to think about the doctrine in your own soul in relationship to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of salvation. But the Lord's table is also important in that it is an aspect of our worship and one, therefore, that we must enter into in fellowship. The Corinthians abused the Lord's table, and Paul warned them that for that reason many among them were going through divine discipline. Therefore, he said that we should examine ourselves first. And so we always take a few minutes in application of that principle, a few minutes of silent prayer, to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship that we are prepared to uh, celebrate the Lord's table and that we're in fellowship and that we have the right attitude, the right focus, the right concentration. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will ask Dave Tongren if he would please return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks now for this bread that we take in remembrance of the one who walked upon this earth in perfect sinless humanity and undiminished deity and then went to that cross as was planned in eternity past to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. Father, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But your beloved son paid the penalty for our salvation the price. We give you thanks now, and it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. As they celebrated the Passover meal together that night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, passed it to the disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Bryce if he would please return thanks for the cup. Heavenly Father, now we come to the second element of the communion, the cup. Father, we know represents the perfect spiritual sacrifice our Lord made upon the cross. 
Well, the scripture states that he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know, Father, that he was perfectly qualified to go to the cross, and we know that he once and for all removed the penalty of sin from us for all of eternity. So, Father, as we partake of this cup together, help us to be mindful of this perfect sacrifice that our Lord made on our behalf. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. At the conclusion of the meal, they came to the third cup, the called the cup of redemption. Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let us stand together and we'll sing hymn number 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. 258.
One thing that uh, Jim forgot to announce for the second hour is that somebody dropped a wad of cash out in the parking lot. Not a big wad of cash. So if you keep your money kind of crumpled up in your pocket, you might want to check to see if you lost it. And if you can, you know, give us the exact serial numbers on all the bills, <laughs> then you can have it. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed your will to us and not only given us all that is sufficient for our spiritual life, but you have informed us of the future. And that is part of our spiritual life in that it provides a, a motivation, a direction. and un- helps us to understand our eternal destiny and thus better to uh, focus, orient the purpose of our life today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, some of you may have noted that we uh, seem to be operating on a slightly accelerated schedule this morning. And there are, and I don't know why it works out this way. Maybe we ought to change our communion to second Sunday, but then it would change there. For some reason, there are about three or four conferences a year that I attend where I have to leave on Sunday afternoon. And the airlines have, and I talk to other pastors who travel a lot, and everybody seems to be uh, very disenchanted with the airline schedule since September 11th. It used to be the flights didn't go out of either Hartford or Providence until 2 o'clock. Now, Hartford, they go out of like 1.20, and out of Providence, it's at 1.40, which barely gives me a time time to get there. And if I'm flying across the country or down to Texas, the next shot's like about 4.30, which means I get in at midnight. So, And it always happens on Communion Sunday, which means we have to kind of speed things up a little bit. And those who listen to tapes frequently say, why was that such a short lesson? Well, because they didn't get the communion part of it. And uh, and we cranked out of here a bit early. So that's why, in case they're listening to tapes, why we're on a little, slightly accelerated schedule this morning. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And we are still studying the introduction. Chapter 1 is the introduction to the book of Revelation. And in this introduction, we have a... Um, a prologue in the first three verses, and then we have a salutation in verses 4 through 8, and then an introduction with the first vision of the book, which is the vision of the Son of Man, in verse, verses 9 down through the end of the chapter. We've looked at the uh, prologue, that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to display, exhibit, show his servants things which must quickly take place. And he communicated it by sending an angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and all things that he saw. And there's a special blessing in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, and that is not 
the individual believer sitting down and reading Revelation on his own at home. It is the outward reading of the book. It is public exposition. The one who read out loud the book of Revelation. Those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. That's the driving agenda of the book of Revelation is to keep the things, keep these things that are heard because the time is near. We don't know when the Lord will return. And of course, the Lord may not return in our lifetime, but on the other hand, you don't know when the Lord may take you home either. That both events are truly uh, imminent in our lives. We have no idea. On the way home today, you may be killed in an automobile accident. We have no guarantee of tomorrow. So there is a sense of urgency here that we need to put our priority on our spiritual life because this is the prep time for us for the millennial kingdom and our time to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And so what we do with our post-salvation life here on earth is going to have a direct impact on what happens in the time after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 4, we have the salutation where we uh, see that the author is the Apostle John addressing it to seven uh, specific churches located in the uh, Roman proconsular province of Asia, which is the western part of Turkey, of modern Turkey. And these seven churches were chosen not because they were all in a straight line or this was a typical way in which you would travel from one town to the other, but because they represent various trends that go on in the church age. And they, they don't come in a historical line, and we'll study that when we get there, but that's a typical interpretation some of you have run into, that, that these seven churches represent the flow of church history, that Ephesus represents the early church, and uh, Sardis represents the apostolic church, and uh, Pergamum represents the early medieval church, and Thyatira represents the corrupt uh, medieval church, and that uh, Smyrna represents the uh, uh, church at the uh, right before the Reformation, and then the church at Philadelphia represents the church after the Reformation, the mission-minded church of the 19th century, and then the Laodicea is the modern church. Well, that may preach, and it may sound good, but it's not true, because in every age you have each of these seven churches. You can take any church from Preston City Bible Church to the First Metho-Presbyterian Catholic Church, wherever your hometown is, and they will fit one of these categories. And as we will see when we get into those seven letters, they give us a real checklist, an evaluation list of where, uh, where churches should place their priority as congregations in terms of their own spiritual life and spiritual growth. So John addresses this to those seven churches, not just the seven letters to the seven churches, but the entire revelation is to be given to these seven churches. And so when John receives this revelation... And he wrote it down. He then made copies. He made uh, seven copies, each to be sent to one of these seven churches. Now, when John made those original copies under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that his original writing, which is called technically by theologians the original autograph, 
the original writing and those seven copies, because I believe they would have also been written and the copying done under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, those were without error. And when we talk about the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, we're emphasizing the fact that the Bible, in its original autograph, was written without error. And God the Holy Spirit so superintended or oversaw the process that the human writers, without excluding their individual personality, their individual style, their circumstances, their background, their various talents and gifts, whatever it may be, without excluding that, the Holy Spirit was able to so oversee the process that what they wrote was without error in the original. The problem is that these these epistles and these books were to be copied. We don't have any of the originals. Uh, if it, something was written at that time, especially in the Old Testament, it would just would not have survived the the time. And it, this was true in the uh, ancient world in Israel that the scribes who copied the Old Testament were very careful. And if uh, any deterioration was seen in the manuscript, they would make a faithful copy and then the original was burned because there was some flaw perhaps. It was becoming moth-eaten or deteriorating in some way and so they would burn it. But first they would make a faithful copy. So this is why we don't have the original manuscripts and remember these were used, these copies were were uh, made to be used. So they were read from the scrolls, the codexes. These were all used in the churches. People did not necessarily have their own copy of Scripture, but there would be a copy made for the church, and they would uh, teach from that, uh, that original, and it, it would become worn out over time, and they would make fresh copies. Well, errors creep in, errors of, of transmission, they're called. Copious errors. They leave out a word or perhaps they, they're familiar with the text and they remember it uh, slightly wrong. So rather than writing in a word in a present tense, uh, as it was in the original, they might change it to a past tense. In some cases in later on in monasteries, which is where the copying would take place, sometimes a, um, a student of the Word, a pastor, a monk, someone was... Uh, studying the particular text, and he might write an explanation in the margin. The next one that came along inadvertently copied that word or explanation or phrase into the text as part of the text. Sometimes when you read down through a page, your eye just inadvertently skips from a phrase on one line to the same phrase on the next line, and you leave out what's in between. That happens, and that happens in Scripture. Sometimes there's omission, words are left out, in some manuscript. But you see, the thing is, if, 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 if you have uh, a desire to faithfully render, faithfully copy the text, and you're double-checking it, there are few errors that enter in. And if you have a number of copies that are made, the same error is not going to be duplicated in every copy. Especially if one, the first copyist leaves a word out, the next time he makes that copy, he doesn't leave it out. He may make a mistake somewhere else. So by taking the copies that we have, we can reconstruct the original. And that study is called the science of textual criticism. And if you have any kind of a what we call a critical text, uh, 
of uh, the Old Testament or New Testament. It has in the lower part of the page, in fact, I have one right here, and I don't know how well you can see it from out there, but, for example, on this particular page, you have in the lower half of the page has what looks like footnotes, and there's various uh, abbreviations and lists of alphabets because each manuscript has some alphabet designation, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalitor, A, B, G, D, F. But that's how we refer to these manuscripts. And they list for the student which uh, uh, variations are in which manuscripts. And you can evaluate these. And there are various books out there. And I don't want to get into a lengthy discussion of textual criticism. But you have to recognize that there are these variations. Now, what happens is that as we sit today, and as you sit out there studying... You have an English Bible that, that is a faithful translation. Most of the translations we use, New King James, New American Standard, are faithful, solid translations of the original. So don't, don't question that. But they're based on different Greek texts. And we start off, let's just say that if you have your Bible here, if you have a King James or a New King James, NKJ, then that is based on a Greek text called the Textus Receptus, or the TR, the Textus Receptus. Now, this was made up of about eight Greek manuscripts that were available to Erasmus in the early 16th century, about, let's say, about 15, 14, 15, 15, somewhere in there, And these eight manuscripts, the oldest of which is about uh, 10th century A.D. So these are very old. I mean, these aren't very old manuscripts. And he only used eight of them. Now, in the 19th century, a bunch of of manuscripts were discovered. Today we have have probably four or 5,000 either fragments or... uh, complete manuscripts. There are very few complete New Testaments. Most of them are have half the New Testament or three-fourths, something like that. But in the 19th century, there was this discovery of primarily four. Now, there were many other manuscripts discovered, but the four most important are, were all related to texts that were found in North Africa. So they're referred to as the Alexandrian texts because of Alexandria in North Africa. But remember, North Africa was also the seat of a lot of heresy and a lot of problems. Now, these all date to about the 4th century A.D. That's pretty old, 600 years earlier than the T.R. Now, in the late 19th century, there were some British scholars by the name of Westcott and Horton. They developed a theory, and without doing a lot of injustice to them and just summarizing it for you all, their theory was basically the oldest is the best. So these must be much better manuscripts. This included uh, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and Vaticanus. Uh, these were part of these, this Alexandrian collection. And there were a lot of differences between uh, these two. The most notable, you'll find, is the last part of the last chapter of Mark and John 6, which is the story of the woman taken in adultery. Those, they're not in the, on the Alexandrian manuscripts at all. So you see your NIV, 
NASB, and most other modern translations are all primarily based on a theory of textual criticism that puts a lot of priority on the oldest manuscript is best. So right away you'll see a lot of differences. In fact, when you look in the margin of some of your Bibles, you will see, if you've got a New American Standard or NIV, it might have a parenthesis or a bracket around a verse in the text. It won't leave them out. It'll put them in italics or put it in brackets, and it'll say in the footnote in the margin, this isn't in the oldest or best manuscripts. See, right then they've made a value judgment that oldest is best. Starting in the middle part of this century, or the 20th century rather, the 1940s and 50s, you had the development of, a, of another view of how to evaluate this evidence called the majority text. And the majority text emphasized the idea that the reading that was found in the majority of documents was probably the strongest documents. But it's not simply that. There's more, a lot more to it than that. I'm just giving you, I don't want to bore you, and I'll watch your eyes glaze over if we get into all these details. But most of the majority text documents relate to uh, copies that are found in the area of what we know as Turkey, Asia Minor, in Greece, that, er- that area. So they're also referred to, that is, whereas the oldest manuscripts are part of a group, they're known as the Alexandrian text, these others are referred to as the Byzantine text group. I mean, that's where the Byzantine Empire held sway. The Byzantine text group. And we have hundreds of those manuscripts. And the TR is a subset of the Byzantine. So here, if this circle describes all the Byzantine manuscripts, the TR represents a small part. But the difference between the TR and the majority text is some 1,800 uh, differences. So they're not identical. Now, I don't know. How many of you all are using a New King James? How many of you all are using a New King? A few of you are using a New King James. If you'll look at the... At the uh, down at the kind of a footnote in your New King James Version. For example, in verse 5, it will say, make a comment, and there it uses an abbreviation. So you have a little hint to this in your New King James Version. It uses this abbreviation, N-U. And it says the N-U text, that's not the new text, that's just the N-U text, uh, reads, loves us, and freed in verse 5 instead of loved us and washed. See, in the King James Version, you have he loved us and washed us from our sins and washed us from our sins by his blood. But that's not what you have in the... um, That's not what you have in the New American Standard. That's not what you have in the... the, um, uh, NIV. And in NIV and, and, and um, New American Standard, you have the present tense, loves us. Instead of washed us, that, that translation reads, and redeemed us. The NU text re- refers to, the N refers to the Greek text called the Nestle Island text. Now it's in the 27th edition. And the U refers to the UBS text, which is the fourth edition. Those are virtually identical. That's what the NU stands for. And so it shows that difference. The, the, this is the text, the Greek text, that lies behind the NASB and the NIV. 
That's why you have a difference. The King James and New King James are based on what's called the TR. But you see you have another abbreviation there at in that footnote in the New King James, and it refers to the M text. And that's the majority text. Now, I do most of my study out of a majority text uh, New Testament, but I compare all of these and uh, when I'm studying a passage. And there's a lot of issues like this we're going to run into in Revelation. That's why I'm taking the time to explain this to you now so that when I come back to this and make these comments, you'll at least have an understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing. If you'll notice in, in one five, if you have a King James Version, it says in the footnote, the... Uh, New text, the critical text, reads, loves us and freed us. But the majority text reads, loves us and washed us. So up here you have loves us and freed us or redeemed us. Here you have, this is in the New Text, it's a present tense. In the King James, you have loved us, past tense, plus washed and in the majority text, it has loves, present, like the New American Standard or NIV, but the verb is different. The majority text clearly has that verb meaning to wash. And the difference is, as I pointed out last time, is the difference between that word and that word, L-U-O versus L-O-U-O. L-U-O would be translated redeem or freed, and luo, with an ou, omicron, upsilon, would be wash. Now, in terms of the meaning, there's virtually no distinction in the meaning. They both communicate the same concept. So you see, we might have a textual variation here, but it doesn't really impact our interpretation of the passage. Now, sometimes you have more of a distinction. Then it does affect, it might affect your interpretation of the passage of that verse significantly. So you would never hang a doctrine. That's, you just don't ever hang a doctrine on something that is textually debatable. See, so I'm no, I've heard pastors take a particular variation and teach a whole doctrine based on that variation. Well, you don't do that unless you can support it from other passages of Scripture. And you see when I talk about these variations, nothing, nothing affects any of the major or basic doctrines of Scripture. They're not affected by any of these. These are 98% of these variations are the difference between two words that are synonyms. And most of the time, these variations are simply grammar, such as past tense to present tense. They're simply grammar or they're spelling differences. So don't think that, well, this makes the Bible untrustworthy. It doesn't. It's not that we don't have what the original said. It's that we have some copies that have the original and some that have something else. So as Dr. Ryrie used to say, it's not that we have, 100, we have 98% we're missing something. We have 105%. We just have to figure out what 5% is not supposed to be there. Okay? Now I'm going to do a series starting in a couple of weeks when we finish 1 Corinthians, where we will deal with a lot of these issues on the how we can trust the Bible in a lot more uh, detail. But the reason I've gone into this is because we do have the two differences here 
uh, in the text. If you're using a New American Standard, it reads that to him who loves us and redeemed us from our sins by means of his own blood. If you're using a King James Version or New King James Version, it reads to him who loved us, past tense, and washed us from our sins. However, there is no English translation based on the majority text. So for that reason, I have to retranslate this and go into this kind of detail. And it should read, to him who loves us, present tense, emphasizing ongoing sanctification grace in the believer's life, because Revelation is written to believers, and it's written in relationship to their ongoing spiritual life, and motivation, and washed us past tense. And I believe it is, it should be translated uh, with that verb, lu, uh, luon, meaning to wash. And it indicates that cleansing action that actually is the result of redemption, that cleansing from our sins by means of his own blood. Now, this is where we stopped last time on this phrase, in his own blood, which should be translated to get a little more technically correct by means of his own blood. See, the washing, the cleansing is accomplished by means of Christ's blood. Now, how do we understand this? Well, we have to recognize that there is a debate over this in some circles. The debate is not nearly as heated as it once was, and, I, and that is a good thing. But there has been a tradition of people who have taken this phrase, the blood of Christ, in an extremely literal fashion. But this is, I do not agree with this. This is not correct. So we have to understand, why don't we take it in a literal sense? And that is because we recognize that, that, that there are figures of speech in the Bible. When we talk about literal interpretation, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in similes or metaphors. And unfortunately this morning, because I have to scoot out of here fast after the closing prayer to make a plane and um, make a flight in uh, Providence, I couldn't set up the projector this morning. But I got a great picture. I'll probably show it many times through Revelation, because Revelation uses a lot of figures of speech. And I got a great picture when we were in Athens. There was this truck that had on the kind of the hood over the over the, um, I don't know what it, not hood, but kind of an air deflector over the cab, had written in, it was a blue truck, and it had written in big gold Greek letters, metaphoris, which is, of course, the, the uh, uh, word related to our English word, metaphor. And I asked our, and I looked at that and went, metaphoris, metaphor, what does metaphor have to do with a truck? So I asked our guide, I said, what does that mean? She said, well, that means transportation. See, that's what a metaphor does, is it transports meaning from one word to another word. See, a simile is a comparison. You say, well, his hair, we'll see this in later on in chapter 1, when Paul, I mean, when John sees uh, the Lord, he says it's one, like the Son of Man, his, his hair was white like wool. See, that's a comparison. That's a stated comparison, white like wool. That's called a simile. If you look at, um, if you simply call something what it is not, if he just said, said hair was, was, his hair was white wool. See, you have, it's not a stated comparison, 
but it's an implied comparison. His hair isn't white wool. You know that. You wouldn't take that literally. You would read that and you would recognize, well, he doesn't have wool on his head. It just looks that way. So when you take the word like or as out, you end up with a metaphor. You've transported the meaning. But you have to have, in a metaphor, you have to have this is that. And uh, you don't have that with the blood of Christ, except in a couple of passages where you have phrases where Jesus said, as in the communion which we celebrated this morning, this is my blood. Now, it wasn't. It's a metaphor. See, this is the problem that the Roman Catholic Church got into, is they couldn't understand the nature of that figure of speech. And so when Jesus said, this is my blood, they got the idea that the wine actually turned into blood. And so they couldn't understand the, the fact that, you know, Jesus was just transporting the meaning from blood to from the from the wine and the color because it it pictured blood to blood but it wasn't actually blood jesus used a lot of metaphors he says i am the door he wasn't a door he said i'm the good shepherd he wasn't actually a shepherd with sh- literal sheep these are all metaphors they are used to communicate certain things so that's what is called a figure of speech now, one of the classic works that has been written on figures of speech is a book by a, by a scholar the early part of the, or actually late part of the 19th century by the name of uh, E.W. Bullinger. The E stands for Ethelbert. Isn't that a great Saxon name? I'd never name a kid that, though. E.W. Bullinger, great dispensationalist. The reason I bring that in is because non-dispensationalists are always accusing us of this, well, you, you're not consistent with your uh, view of, 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 uh, of interpretation. You always insist on this literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. Well, what about figures of speech? Well, here is a one of the greatest dispensational scholars of all time, E.W. Bullinger, and he writes a four-inch thick book called The Figures of Speech in the Bible. See, a literal translation does not exclude figures of speech. A figure of speech is how we normally talk, and we understand how to literally interpret those figures of speech in terms of their plain, normal usage. Now, Bullinger lists all kinds of figures of speech that you never heard of. Believe me, you have all kinds of things like synecdoche and the one that we have here, a uh, metalepsis, metonymy. Uh, hyperbole, merisms, these are all figures of speech. Personification, these are all different kinds of, of, of figures of speech that are found in the Bible. Now, in, the, in his book on figures of speech, he talks about this expression, the blood of Christ. And he says that in the New Testament, the expression, the blood of Christ, is the figure metalepsis. See, in a metalepsis is like a double metonymy. Uh, and so that's where the term comes from. Because it does two things. You really have two figures operating here. He says, first, the blood is put by synecdoche for bloodshedding. He's not talking, you're not talking about the blood, the literal blood of Christ. You're talking about the fact that the blood, the phrase blood of Christ, is talking about the shedding of blood. But the term shedding of blood itself is a figure and doesn't actually refer to, to literal shedding of blood, but in turn, it is just a picture of physical violent death so that that 
phrase must be understood as a figure. And uh, this by E.W. Bullinger, who is one of the uh, classic students of Scripture, classic scholars of figures of speech. But the Bible emphasizes this phrase, blood of Christ, again and again and again. And it is used as a term to relate to the different dimensions of Christ's work on the cross. For example, in Acts 20, 28, we're told that he purchased us with his blood. What doctrine is that? It's redemption. He paid the purchase price. Romans 3.25, his death is a propitiation by means of his blood. So the doctrine there is propitiation. Romans 5.9 says we're justified by means of his blood. So that's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood. So there's a doctrine of redemption. Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near by means of the blood. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. Uh, Colossians 1.20, we have peace with God through the blood of his cross. Reconciliation again. So you see, all of these passages indicate a different dimension to the doctrine of salvation, the work of Christ on the cross. Hebrews 9.14, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. That talks about sanctification. Hebrews 9.22, are purified by the blood. Katharizo, same word translated cleansed in John, our first John 1.9. Uh, that again talks about sanctification. First John 1.7, the blood of Christ cleanses. Katharizo, that's talking about sanctification. So this is a classic figure of speech in the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with talking about the blood of Christ if you understand it correctly. The Holy Spirit certainly understood it correctly and used it many, many times in the Bible. The reason I say that is because sometimes we so emphasize the fact that the blood of Christ isn't literal that when some people read the phrase in a hymn, they immediately want to dump the hymn because it might be abused. Now, it is abused in some hymns. You know, like there is a fountain, you know, flowing. There's a fountain filled with blood from Emmanuel's veins. Now, see, that goes back to this old medieval Roman Catholic heresy that Jesus literally bled for our sins on the cross. And that's because in Roman Catholic theology, it's the physical suffering and death of Christ that pays the penalty. That's why in Mel, uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, the emphasis is totally on the physical suffering of Jesus. Because that, for a Catholic, is what is redemptive. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not his physical death that's redemptive at all because the penalty for sin wasn't physical death. It was spiritual death. But he had to die physically for other reasons than that which was, that which performed the, the uh, payment for our sins, redemption or propitiation or reconciliation. It was his spiritual death on the cross. So the blood represents, the term blood of Christ represents that spiritual substitutionary Death of Christ on the cross. So don't be afraid to talk to of singing a hymn that mentions the blood of Christ. Just look and see how it's used. There's nothing wrong with the phrase. There's nothing wrong with saying, "Well, I've been cleansed by the blood." Bible uses that phrase. We just have to know what it means. That it's not talking about the literal, physical uh, <clears throat> blood of Jesus Christ. Now, one reason I mentioned some of those verses is that there's no other verse in the Bible that uses either that word washed, 
by his blood, or the word luo for redeemed from his blood. You have other words that are synonyms for redemption and washing, but you don't have either of those two words uh, used specifically. So uh, the concept is the same. There is a relationship between cleansing from our sins and redemption. But here the emphasis is on that post-salvation sanctification of the believer that we are washed from our sins by means of his blood. So how do we understand the blood of Christ? Well, a few points. We'll see how far we get this morning. Point number one, the phrase blood of Christ or his blood or the blood of the Lamb. Three phrases, blood of Christ, his blood, blood of the Lamb are common biblical phrases describing the death of Christ. Five times in the book of Revelation there is mention of the blood of Christ. You have mentioned the blood of the Lamb. This is a common phrase. Over ten times in the book of Hebrews you have a mention of the blood of Christ, plus numerous other times in the New Testament. So it is a legitimate biblical phrase, blood of Christ. Second, as I already pointed out, there's a misunderstanding about this phrase. And it's often taken to be literal in the sense that it's his physical blood that is redemptive. But let me give you a, uh, uh, an understanding here. Under the principles of literal interpretation, the plain normal use of language, we recognize the use of figures of speech, such as metaphors, similes, personification, etc. When the phrase, the scripture says that, that Jesus had uh, feet like fine brass, we don't think that his feet turned into brass. You know, there's an image there that is being described. So that's all part of lit- literal interpretation of Scripture. We understand idioms and properly interpret them. Third, following the basic words, rules of word study, we see that the idea behind the phrase shedding of blood takes its meaning from the first murder in the Bible. See, one, it's not always true, but it's often true, frequently enough to make it almost a rule, that if you want to understand the meaning of a word or phrase in the Bible, you go back to the first three or four times in which it's used in the Bible. That usually gives us the parameters of the definition. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 4, we don't, we're not going to take the time, it describes the murder of of uh, Abel by Cain. And he murders Abel by using a sacrificial knife and probably cut his throat. So that involved the literal shedding of blood. What happens is that concept of the literal shedding of blood enters into the lexicon of the Bible as a description of violent death. So that when we get over to Genesis 9-6 which is the first time we have the phrase mentioned. We read in the statement of the Noahic Covenant related to capital punishment, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now see, that shows that by Genesis 9-6, the phrase shedding of man's blood has become an idiom with the idea of violent Death, violent, illegal death. It doesn't mean that, oh, capital punishment should only be in the event of death where somebody slit somebody's throat or disemboweled them or in some way caused them to physically bleed. What about poisoning? What about strangulation? What about 
uh, just uh, hitting them over the head and, and killing them with a blunt instrument. Well, that's still murder. That would still come under the category. So the Bible uses this phrase, shedding of blood, to represent violent, physical death, homicide. That's the way it's handled in the lexicons. This is point number four. Greek lexicons recognize this as a valid meaning. There's a Greek lexicon that's written for English readers by a native Greek Bible scholar named Spiros uh, Zodiades. And he states that the blood of Christ, therefore, that phrase, represents the life that he gave for our atonement. Not physical. It represents the life he gave for our atonement, which, of course, was his spiritual life when he paid the penalty on the cross. Uh, D.A. Carson, who is a Greek scholar and professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, wrote a book several years ago called Exegetical Fallacies. I think he's got a few fallacies in his exegetical comments, especially related to free grace, because he is a lordship salvation man, but that doesn't affect him here. In that book, he says, quote, A third level of the same problem was painfully exemplified in three recent articles about the blood of Christ in Christianity Today. That's a magazine if you're not familiar with it. The author did an admirable job of explaining the wonderful things that science has discovered that the blood can do. What a wonderful picture we are told of how the blood of Jesus purifies every sin. In fact, it is nothing of the kind, Carson says. Worse, it is irresponsible, mystical, and theologically misleading. The phrase, the blood of Christ, or the blood of Jesus, refers to our Lord's violent, sacrificial death. In general, the blessings that the Scripture shows to be accomplished or achieved by the blood of Jesus are equally said to be accomplished or achieved by His death on the cross. In other words, it's a figure of speech. Fourth point, when our Lord died on the cross, He shed very little physical blood. He didn't bleed to death. Crucifixion was a death by asphyxiation. You didn't bleed to death. The Romans wanted to keep you up there for three or four days if possible. So there was very little bleeding. But what would eventually happen is as you hung on the cross, put pressure on your diaphragm so you couldn't breathe, finally you couldn't lift yourself up anymore to relieve that pressure, and you would basically uh, die from uh, lack of oxygen. Point number five, therefore, the conclusion is the blood of Christ is a figure of speech describing his substitutionary atonement on the cross. But what kind of substitutionary atonement? Physical death or spiritual death? Well, it wasn't his physical death. Point number seven, his physical death didn't pay the penalty because the penalty was spiritual death. Genesis 2-7. Therefore, point number, I think this is uh, point number eight, Therefore, it was not his physical death, but his spiritual death that was efficacious for our salvation. So to be correct, the term that we must use is Christ's spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. His physical death is not what paid the penalty, but his spiritual death on the cross. So that whenever you see the phrase, blood of Christ, that refers to his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, where he paid the uh, penalty for all of our sins. As a result of that, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, justification, and sanctification are all accomplished 
by means of his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. And that's the emphasis here in verse 5. That uh, this is written to him, that is Jesus, who loves us and washed us, positional sanctification cleansing, washed us from our sins by means of his own blood, that is his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. Now next time we'll come back and look at the conclusion of this second uh, triplet on Jesus. Remember he loves us, he washed us, and he has made us a kingdom. There's going to be another problem there, textual problem. In fact, it really isn't a textual problem. The King James translates it, he made us kings, but the word, they just mistranslated it, the word is kingdom. He's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We will study that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to come to an understanding, a greater understanding, more detailed understanding of the work of Christ on the cross, all that was accomplished for us that we could have eternal life, that it was through his spiritual substitutionary death during those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when you imputed to him the sins of humanity and he was judged for them, paid the penalty so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? And so these final minutes are for the person who's here who is unsure or uncertain of their eternal life. And the way you can make that sure or certain is simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone, simply to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today, that we might have a greater appreciation for what our Savior has done for us, what he has accomplished for us in our salvation. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.